Hi, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. And as you can see, I'm hanging out today at the Natural History Museum here. So, like in any other domain of human endeavor, when it comes to science, there is a spectrum of quality and accuracy. And on one end of the spectrum, there is excellent double-blind placebo-controlled research that for us as biohackers is really profoundly helpful in us being able to live better, right? But then on the other end of the spectrum, and we have to speak honestly about this, on the other end of the spectrum is, is a lot of science that is really just tantamount to ranty, opinionated, baseless blog articles, or like those opinion pieces, those uh, editorialized articles that you'll maybe see in your newspaper on the, the Sunday edition or the Saturday edition or whatnot. And then also a lot of science is industry funded by big pharmaceutical companies and is really marketing, masquerading as science. And information is the, the best tool that we have for living well. In fact, it's really kind of like the only tool that we have for living well. And bad information really does limit us. It really does have a uh, asymmetrical high cost. So it's, it really is important to make sure that we have a, a, a system for uh, tracking down and for you know, getting veracity with our information. And science, science is that system. But science is not like a, like a crystal ball that we can stare into to ascertain absolute truth. However, if you're willing to apply a little bit of extra attention, if you're willing to uh, employ a bit more cognitive horsepower and your critical thinking about science, then there's some red flags that make it pretty easy to pick out bad science. I'll encourage you not to place blind faith in the establishment of science the way that your ancestors likely placed blind faith in the Catholic Church or whatever their religious persuasion was. As Nassim Taleb articulates in Anti-Fragile, the unconditional belief in the idea of scientific prediction regardless of the domain, the aim to squeeze the future into numerical reductions whether reliable or unreliable. For we have managed to transfer religious belief into gullibility for whatever can masquerade as science. Perhaps you're skeptical of bad science. Maybe you're saying, come on, Jonathan, there's no such thing as bad science. All science is good. Well, I'll remind you that for 30 years, science and physicians promised the public that smoking cigarettes was good for them. 
And for 40 years, science and the FDA put out the ridiculous food pyramid recommending that the public eat a diet mostly of bread, pasta, and dairy. Has science cleaned up its act in recent times? In 2015, Richard Horton, editor-in-chief of Lancet, the UK's leading medical journal, stated, the case against science is straightforward. Much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may be untrue. Science has taken a turn toward darkness. And in 2010, Dr. Marcia Angel of the prestigious New England Medical Journal was equally disparaging of the state of science. Quote, it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reached slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm not saying here, something as depressing as that science is useless, but it should be scrutinized. And you should not turn off your common sense and your critical reasoning skills just because something has been labeled science. The first major life hack for telling the difference between good science and bad science is to go to the source. So a well-meaning layperson will go and read a science article online and they will assume that they are educating themselves. They'll assume that they're doing some meaningful research on a topic. So a, a well-meaning person will Google search something like climate change, anti-aging, IQ, or nutrition. They will read the first few articles that they find on Google and then they'll you know, give themselves a pat on the back for acquiring a modicum more of expertise on the subject. While not totally useless, this information consumption really doesn't count as researching the actual science itself. And the same applies to listening to podcasts or watching YouTube videos. Yes, even mine. Researching the science means actually reading the scientific studies meta-analyses, papers, books, and PubMed abstracts, which are full of stale jargon, superfluous acronyms, scientific terminology, and not exactly inspiring verbal prose. Reading scientific literature is really not fun to do. In fact, it may put you to sleep, but if you actually want to understand a scientific topic, it's crucial. Here's a life hack. Next time you find yourself in a debate with someone over some scientific topic, just ask them, when was the last time that they read a book specifically on the topic in contention? Be like, oh really? So you don't think that IQ is a meaningful measure of uh, you know, an individual or a group's intelligence. When was the last time that you read a book about 
IQ. And almost always they will have never read a book about the subject uh, of debate. And then you can point out how really uninformed they are on the topic. As a rule in life, if you haven't read a book on a topic, then you really don't know what you're talking about in regards to it. They have so little commitment to veracity and empiricism that they are not even willing to commit a couple of solid hours to understanding the topic. You can then point out that their position on this issue is really more of just a preference than it is uh, about veracity or empiricism. You can point out that you guys debating this or them debating their position is really more like debating whether chocolate or vanilla ice cream is better. Obviously, this debate tactic only works if you yourself have actually read up on the topic. So I'll encourage you to, you know, go stick your nose in a book, do some reading on the topics that you anticipate debating. Next, I want to talk about mainstream media misinformation. So you may think that the New York Times, the Huffington Post, or the Guardian have high journalistic standards, but I'll suggest that next time after you read a uh, new study finds type article in these publications, go and take a look at the study that they're, that they're referencing, that the, that the uh, journalist is writing about. Oftentimes it's just a Google search away and more often than not, you'll find a blatant error or misrepresentation in the mainstream media's uh, representation of the science in the study. And particularly so if there are political or uh, financial implications of the study that's been done. Uh, unfortunately, journalists, they're supposed to tell the truth, but more often than not, they lie. And if you actually want to understand this, I suggest you read the book, Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday, which I also did a review of. Let's talk about information profiteers. There's a necessary class of merchants of science or science writers, people like myself, Dave Asprey, and Stephen Kotler. Our job is to make the science more understandable and useful to the public, but we make mistakes from time to time. Our fact checking is not perfect and our incentives are often not aligned perfectly with our earnest desire to educate people on how to use science to live better. I call us a necessary class because scientific publications really are boring to read and nearly indecipherable to the public. And without more marketing-minded people that are acting as a bit of a filter, that are acting as a bit of a layer in between the scientific community and the general public, a lot of 
really uh, excellent, useful, transformative scientific knowledge really would not pervade into the world beyond the institutions of science and uh, the doors of laboratories around the world. I think that we can all agree that we would like for science to be available and understandable for almost everybody so that science can be a democratizing force in the world. However, amongst us, there is a real spectrum from genuine educators to total charlatans who are just in it to make a buck. So how can you spot a disingenuous uh, science writer or a merchant information profiteer? Lack of proper citations. Many science or health articles consist of several hundred words followed by a handful of links to studies that ostensibly support the conclusions presented by the writer of the article. But a lot of times the citations really don't support the conclusions. This is why you should look for direct quotes from the studies or researchers themselves supporting the conclusions as opposed to just links. Omissions of unappealing information. Especially in the field of anti-aging products and biohacking supplements, disingenuous science writers will omit information that hurts the case for the supplement or drug in question. Clear conflicts of interest. We usually make our money a few different ways. Uh, affiliate sales of products, sponsorship, advertising revenues. Often these income sources create a perverse incentive. If it's clear that a writer has a financial incentive that makes them partial to a particular product or supplement, you should further scrutinize their portrayal of the science surrounding it. Ads, yes, of course, ads. They're just ruining the world, aren't they? Online advertising creates a bad incentive for science writers to put out a great quantity of uh, content articles in lieu of quality. So if you're on a website and it just has a ton of ads on it, in the header above the article, in the sidebar of the article, below the article, popping up all over the place, that's good reason to doubt what it's saying. Ghostwritten. Writers who know what they're talking about almost always put their real name and face on their work. They're proud of their work and stand behind it. There's a lot of quintessential content farm websites out there that churn out a great quantity of articles about health, science, and supplementation. Invariably, the writers are invisible. They are often outsourced digital laborers working for just a few dollars an hour in a place like the Philippines or India. Lack of author credentials. Writers who know what they're talking about will have some relevant credentials and experience. Scientists often spend decades myopically focused on a singular scientific niche. They'll understand it profoundly, but often they'll lack holistic knowledge about how that science could be useful to lay people. The writer's job is to be a scientific polymath 
that can articulate helpful applications of the science to lay people. However, if you're reading a, an article on a blog, even if it looks like a, a, a good high quality blog, even if the design is nice, if you're reading an article and it contains any of these red flags that I just outlined, if you're making a critical decision about something and you really need to understand the science, go to the source. However, sometimes the source publication itself is actually bad science. Consider the recent case of the hilarious hoax paper, the conceptual penis as a social construct, that actually passed the peer review process and was published in a mainstream social science journal, Cogent Social Sciences. The authors specifically wrote the least scientific paper possible. They wrote a paper with the specific purpose of being rejected for being unscientific. Yet it got accepted. A couple of examples of the absurdities that it postulated. Manspreading. A complaint levied against men for sitting with their legs spread wide is akin to raping the empty space around him. We conclude that penises are not best understood as the male organ or as a male reproductive organ, but instead as an enacted social construct that is both damaging and problematic for society and future generations. The conceptual penis presents significant problems for gender identity and reproductive identity within social and family dynamics. It is exclusionary to disenfranchise communities based upon gender or reproductive identity is an enduring source of abuse for women and other gender marginalized groups and individuals is the universal performative source of rape and is the conceptual driver behind much of climate change. Destructive, unsustainable, hegemonically male approaches to pressing environmental policy and action are thus predictable results of a raping of nature by a male-dominated mindset. They intentionally made it as absurd and anti-scientific as possible. From the Skeptic.com article where they admitted and owned up to their hoax. After completing the paper, we read it carefully to ensure that it didn't say anything meaningful. And as neither of us could determine what it is actually about, we deemed it a success. Not only is the text ridiculous, so are the references. Most of our references are quotations from papers and figures in the field that barely make any sense in context of the text. And nearly a third of the sources that are cited in this hoax paper are going to a fake website that was set up to mock uh, the academic establishment, the, the corner of academia and brainless postmodernism type thought that makes this sort of thing possible. So the, there's, there's just Mandelbrot layers 
and layers of uh, trolling in this hoax paper, yet it was published by Cogent Social Sciences. Shame on you, Cogent Social Sciences. You suck. Go delete your account. Bono. When researching science, it's important to ask who benefits, who is getting paid. Many journals like Cogent Social Sciences operate as a business with what's called a pay-to-publish model. This means that if you want to get your study or paper into their journal and syndicate it out to their audience, which is, you know, everyone who's a subscriber to their journal, and then uh, a lot of like universities and some public libraries and that sort of thing, then you got to pay them. The authors of the hoax paper, the Conceptual Penis, paid Cogent Social Sciences $625 to get published. And they published under fake names and as part of a uh, fake institution, uh, j just totally made up, which Cogent Social Sciences did not catch, which is just mind-blowing to me. It seems to me that anyone just using Google could figure out in about 30 seconds that these were not real researchers who are not a part of a real organization, yet they got their paper published. So for $625, for approximately the same amount of money that you would spend if you were to score some cocaine and get drunk on champagne and then bang a hooker in a chintzy hotel room in Vegas, for that amount of money, anyone's nonsensical, moronic opinions can be transformed into science. Uh, which makes you wonder how many of the other uh, studies and papers that have appeared in social science, in cogent social sciences over the year in that journal are similar pseudoscientific bullshit. I bet probably most of them. Next point, moralizing should be scrutinized. You should be very suspicious of science or scientists that make moral statements. Science and morality should not necessarily be separated like church and state or matter and antimatter in the warp drive of the Starship Enterprise, to make a pseudoscientific metaphor. But the more moralizing statements that bracket the science, the more you should be suspicious of it. I'll repeat that because it's really important. The more moralizing statements that are that are bracketing the science, the more you should be suspicious of it. Case in point, the conceptual penis is chock full of moralizing statements. Another uh, glaring red flag that the peer reviewers at Cogent Social Science totally ignored. To quote the hoaxers, the authors of that paper again. That is, we sought to demonstrate that a desire for a certain moral view of the world to be validated could overcome the critical assessment required for legitimate scholarship, 
Particularly, we suspected that gender studies is crippled academically by an overriding, almost religious belief that maleness is the root of all evil. On the evidence, our suspicion was justified. Luckily for biohackers, the science of peak performance, health, anti-aging, diet, nutrition is not very politicized relative to the social sciences, which are just uh, a minefield of misinformation and propaganda. Let's keep it that way, guys. Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and this is a follow-up video to my series on bad science. And in this video, I wanted to address the myth of settled science. Settled science, that's probably something that you've heard uh, frequently recently from some person on television who was wearing a suit and makeup and was just illuminated by way too many lights and had just a crazy amount of uh, graphics and text flashing around them. There's, there's a, a tendency amongst the, amongst the public, I think, uh, amongst lay people, amongst people that you know don't make it a full-time or a part-time commitment to study science, to believe that science has kind of got everything figured out. And this is understandable because it's been a while since science delivered us something that was really, really conspicuous. You think about an invention like the airplane that really changed the world. Well, that was a hundred years ago, over a hundred years ago. Um, I think about uh, space flight, really exciting, really exciting uh, application of science. That was 60 years ago that that was really, you know, uh, breaking, breaking through the, the mindset of what people thought was possible for our species. Uh, let's think about the atomic bomb. That was like 60 years ago. That was like 70 years ago. Uh, we think about uh, computers. Well, computers were invented in the middle of last last century. They're, they're a big part of our life, but we still we don't think of them as being like that recent. If we try to think of what the most recent, really paradigm shifting uh, application of science invention has probably been the internet, and that's about. 30 years old. So if you're so if you're a millennial uh, or younger, you can barely recall a future with or a past without the internet, right? And so it's understandable that lay people might think similarly that within the field of the health sciences that there've been no major game changers in like the last 10 years. They may think, ah, you know, it's just, it, they've got everything figured out, but it's, it, it's just incremental experience, just, you know, slight iterations at this point. And actually, that couldn't be further from the truth in the fields of, of anti-aging and health science and performance enhancement. The last 10 years have been the most raucous, the most interesting. Uh, and and a lot of this hasn't quite reached the mainstream yet. We're, we're trying. People like me are trying, but 
a lot of times it hasn't reached the mainstream. I'll give you an example uh, of this. For the longest time, the powers that be and the scientific regulators and the educational establishment told people that fat is bad. Don't eat fat unless you want to be fat, right? And they produced, you know, the this, this silly uh, food diet pyramid that told us that we should be eating a ton of dairy and carbs. Yet, in the last 10 years, the science has emerged, uh, the data is getting just clearer and clearer, and it's becoming really evident that fat is good for us, that fat is what our minds and bodies profoundly run off of. And in this situation, up until, you can imagine like 10 years ago, 10 years ago, our civilization was a very close amalgamation to what it is now. We still had, you know, uh, we had cars with rims on them and cell phones and hip hop music videos. Things weren't all that different, but the settled science was dead wrong about something that affects all of us and something that we do every day. Um, and again, these things are, they're, they're, they're starting to reach the mainstream, but unfortunately, a lot of people dogmatically believe that fat is bad for you, that, you know, uh, carbs or low fat is better for you. And a lot of people dogmatically also believe in this myth of settled science. I'll encourage you not to place blind faith in the establishment of science the way that your ancestors likely placed blind faith in the Catholic Church or whatever their religious persuasion was. As Nassim Taleb articulates in Anti-Fragile, the unconditional belief in the idea of scientific prediction regardless of the domain, the aim to squeeze the future into numerical reductions, whether reliable or unreliable. For we have managed to transfer religious belief into gullibility for whatever can masquerade as science. And neuroplasticity is another topic that the settled science was wrong about for a long time. And I'll quote from Dave Asprey's book, Headstrong. It wasn't until later in the 20th century that scientists discovered what's called neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to grow new cells and forge new neural connections throughout your life. Before then, researchers believed that your brain remained static until it degenerated in old age. And perhaps your own mother even, you know, uh, shared that wrong settled science with you perhaps she told you you know don't if you kill your brain cells they don't they don't grow back i i certainly remember hearing that and uh, that was again settled science that was wrong we stand at the frontier of an exciting new era of performance enhancement science our generation was born too late to explore the world, to, you know, chart new territory, to put new land masses on the map, to add to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And we were also born too early to explore 
the stars to, to propagate our species beyond this blue marble. But I think that we were born at just the right time to take on perhaps a much more important project of building better humans with science. And if we don't get too dogmatically caught up in the settled science, then I think there's a good chance that those better humans we create could make it to the stars. Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. This is my next video in my series on bad science. And in this video, I'm gonna address what really is pseudoscience. So the word pseudoscience is certainly bandied about frequently, isn't it? And, you know, a little less frequently, where we also hear its, its cousin word, which is pseudo-intellectual. And then there's a third word that I like even more than those two, which is sophistry. And of course, I'm sure that you're already sick of the buzz phrase, fake news, which is definitionally synonymous with pseudo-intellectual. So what do these things actually mean? And where do we draw the line between these and their opposites, which would be uh, veracity, which would be you know information that accurately reflects the truth that we need to make our decisions or live our life better. Accusations of pseudoscience or pseudo-intellectualism almost always are a component part of some political or ideological narrative. Next family reunion, bring up a scientific subject and it won't be long before the discussion devolves into an ideological or political standoff over the plates of food and beverages. Whether effective or ineffective, accusing the other side of pseudo-veracity is one of the most commonly used debate tactics in really almost any debate. So you're asking, how exactly do we tell the difference between real science and pseudoscience? Well, good news, it's actually relatively simple if we use the, the, the correct definition of pseudoscience which is pseudoscience purports to be an accurate description of physical law despite either one, consistently failing experimental verification or two, being unfalsifiable. I think that the second part of that definition is actually most interesting. Pseudoscience or pseudo-intellectual movements are fundamentally and consistently unfalsifiable. They make assertions about life, society, and the world that cannot be disproven. What are some examples of this? Let's say I told you that there are exactly 2.4 million rabbits in France at this moment. 
can you disprove that? Can you go out and count every single rabbit that's in France at this moment, chomping on the grass or rabbit food? No, you can't. So it's not really unfalsifiable. Let's say that I told you that in the sky, there is a giant dancing penguin named Pete. And uh, Pete's invisible. And that if you have sex with the wrong person, you make Pete very, very sad. Can you disprove that? Not really. Okay, so those examples are a little bit silly. Here's some more practical ones. I can't really disprove that God created the universe 10,000 years ago because God in his infinite power would have the ability to create a universe instantaneously that appeared to be 13 billion years old. So, sorry Christians, uh, creationism or intelligent design is fundamentally unfalsifiable. Another example, as was postulated in the hilariously stupid uh, scientific paper, the conceptual penis that was published in Cogent Social Sciences, which I mentioned in the other video, as was mentioned in that paper, can I, as a male, disprove that I am not causing climate change by raping the empty space around me? It's so absurd. No, I can't really disprove that. So uh, social sciences is, let's be honest, mostly pseudoscience. Another example, can you disprove that redistributing the wealth of the top 1% of humanity to the rest of humanity would create a global utopia. Well, not really. You can't really disprove it. You know, it's been, it's been attempted many different times on a smaller scale, and it's been categorically disastrous and terrible for almost everyone in society. But it's never been attempted on a global scale. So you can't really disprove it. So the uh, the professors and the uh, public figures that you see advocating for uh, globalist, socialist, utopia, or universal basic income are fundamentally pseudo-intellectuals. So next time you find yourself in a debate on a ostensibly scientific subject, or the next time that you read in a magazine about some groundbreaking new study that came out with some uh, really counterintuitive new finding, what you want to do is ask how it could be disproven. And if it would be extraordinarily implausible or downright impossible to disprove it, then it's unfalsifiable. And it's really something that is uh, in the domain of being a preference. And it really is uh, pseudoscience or pseudo-intellectual. And uh, preference is something that you know people prefer for emotional reasons or 
<laughs> whatever. So preferences like, I like chocolate ice cream, you like, you know, vanilla caramel ice cream, or you like, you know, big SUVs with big blingy rims on them, and I like sleek, sexy sports cars, or you like girls with little booties, and I like girls with big booties. <laughs> you get the point. It's, it's just a preference. So when you find yourself running into a unfalsifiable position that is masquerading as science or pseudoscience, and maybe there's even a little bit of uh, statistics sprinkled in there, point it out for what it is. Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and today I've got some interesting news about PubMed spearheading the fight against bad science. So uh, I'm here at a cafe, just enjoying a little bit of the spring weather. It's, it's getting warmer. As you can see, it's getting a little bit greener here in Eastern Europe. And I said that I would perhaps do a few more of these type of videos where I'm talking about biohacking and life hacking while living my life, as opposed to doing these really long-winded video blogs where I'm sitting in my uh, boring little home office or my, my hackerspace office here. So this, uh, I, I saw a story that was from Vox, actually, and I read it in its completion. You can do the same if you'd like. And then I also went over and I read the uh, press release that it came from. And there's a problem that the biohacking, the supplement, the nootropics industry is uh, particularly vulnerable to, which is that uh, science, uh, and, and definitely the science of performance enhancement using supplements and nootropics is quite vulnerable to corruption because the studies that are done that are trying to determine if there's an anti-aging effect, if there's a stress response effect, if there's a beneficial effect uh, that can be measured via EEG or whatever from these nootropics and supplements that we're using, these supplements are expensive, especially if they're the kinds of studies that really matter, which are the double-blind, human placebo controlled studies right they cost uh they cost well into the six figure range sometimes sometimes more even depending upon the sample size the number of people that are used and someone has to fund that and a lot of times the funding is industry funding the funding is funded by companies that have a real vested interest in there being evidence coming out that shows that a particular supplement, a particular product is gonna is gonna help people, is gonna cure people of a disease, is gonna have a uh, performance enhancing effect. And previously, if you wanted to ascertain this, if you wanted to figure this out, what you would have to do is you'd have to get that study, and often you would have to read it in its completion. You'd have to read the whole study, and then somewhere uh, buried in the study, usually in the bottom of the study near 
down where the citations are, they'd have some conflict of interest information. That's, that's something that I believe uh, by law, by regulation, the scientists and the uh, publishers of studies have to, have to put in there for people. But of course, these studies are not often, the complete text of these studies are not available. Often it's just the abstract of these studies that are available and the vast majority of the articles that you see written, the, uh, the, the people that are on YouTube like me that are talking about studies, what we're doing is we're looking at the abstracts and what the summarization is saying of these studies and we're not able to look at who's actually funding these studies. Sometimes in my own research, if possible, I will always try to get a hold of the complete study text and take a look at all of that. But a lot of times, especially if we're dealing with a study that was done years ago or decades ago, that information is just not available. And so what we're going after is we're just going after the summarization in the abstract. And yeah, that is information that is highly susceptible to uh, corruption, unfortunately. You know, science is not an unimpeachable monolith of veracity. Science is, it's, it's kind of like the Catholic Church, right? It's uh, an institution that has interests in, uh, you know, protecting its own continuity and it has a financial interest. And so there is susceptibility to corruption there. And what's great now is that PubMed is displaying beneath the study abstract, it's gonna have a conflict of interest summary saying, you know, hey, there is a product manufacturer, there's a big brand that funded this particular study, so take it with a grain of salt. And this is something that resulted from 62 scientists and physicians, along with five United States senators, got together and they petitioned the National Library of Medicine and the National Institute of Health in the United States and said, you know, hey, let's start making this information super conspicuous on the abstract pages, which anybody can find on PubMed and it actually went through. So this is kind of one of these things where, you know, usually I'm a really skeptical person. Usually I'm a bit of a pessimistic person about, you know, institutions and especially uh, politicians and the entanglement and the, uh, how, how, how there's all these uh, powerful people that are in bed with each other protecting, you know, the interests of, of industry, of course, but sometimes the politicians and the institutions actually work in the public interest, and this is certainly one of those. So I did a little bit of, uh, I wanted to take a look at this, and I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast, like a lot of you, and he will talk about the study that Onnit uh, funded for their flagship product, AlphaBrain, which is probably uh, one of the most popular nootropic products out there. And so I said, you know, hey, this study was obviously funded by Onnit, so I bet this is going to be a good example, right? And I went to the study, and I'll link to it so you can check this out for yourself, and it did not disclose it. So um, this, this is a good move by PubMed, but I don't think it's working perfectly quite yet because you got to think about this. Uh, what happens is the people publishing the study, they need to voluntarily disclose that information. 
And what I also did was I went and did a cross-referencing on PubMed by conflict of interest, looking at Bayer Pharmaceutical, which is of course one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. They're gonna have all the, all the conflicts of interest that you could shake a stick at, right? And I found 300 items, but almost all of them were within, were very recent. So the takeaway from this is that recent human double-blind placebo-controlled studies are, as always, most relevant. That's what we want to look for. And the older studies are, if they're years or decades old, that conflict of interest information is going to be increasingly inaccurate. So uh, this kind of confirms the methodology that I used in my research for a while, which is to value recency over studies and things that were done years ago. If you found this interesting, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Give me a, a thumbs up and all that. Thanks, look forward to a continued conversation with you. Legal notices. If you or someone you know developed or created a concept, piece of content, or idea shared on this show, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com so we can mention them in the show notes or provide a backlink. We want to give credit where credit is due. As a listener to the Limitless Mindset podcast, we hope you have and practice common sense. However, since some of the content covered in this show deals with subjects of a health, legal, or business nature, this show is for entertainment purposes. If you need recommendations of doctors, nutritionists, or attorneys to consult before making decisions that may have health or legal repercussions, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com.